Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And while you turn there, I'll pray for us. Father, hear our prayers. Please bless our time, Lord. Whatever other distractions we might have in our hearts or minds, um, whether that is Satan trying to steal the Word out of our mind or whether that's just some extra little stress or worry, about what we have to do after class, would you protect us from any and all distractions so that we can be all here, so that we can focus on you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray that we would be attentive to your word, that Holy Spirit, you would draw near, that you would speak to all of our hearts. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ at all costs. So would you use these next few minutes together to do that, we pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 11. Uh, we're looking at legalism, right? We looked at legalism last week, the idea of adding to God's law. That's one way to be legalistic. But today we're going to look at a different way to be legalistic, which might seem counterintuitive at first, but it's actually subtracting from God's law. Okay? Because remember, when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, okay, their first thought was, I've got to put my best foot forward in front of one another. They got very worried about their horizontal human relationships, and they didn't want to be perceived a certain way. And so uh, they put on the fig leaf righteousness. And that's a lot of what we looked at last week, people adding to the law to make themselves look better. But there's also, after that, God comes into the garden seeking Adam and Eve, and then they're fearful of him. And they're running, they're hiding, they're not directly answering his questions, they're trying to minimize things. And that is often what people do as well. And we subtract from the law. In a sense, we try to right-size the law to make it feel like we're really obeying the law so that we can feel like we have some kind of works-based righteousness before God. Does that make sense? Okay, so we're going to look at how the Pharisees specifically did this. They refocused, they reinterpreted, and they reduced the law. That's how they subtracted. So Luke chapter 11, and let's start in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And this is one of the interesting things. You, you often see this in the Gospels. It's like the Pharisees were really interested in Jesus because they heard his teaching. They heard how much he knew about the law. They were seeing the miracles. They often, I mean, Maybe the thing that attracted them or interested them the most in Jesus is they saw how much power and influence he had with the crowds. So they're, they're going to him, they're talking to him, they're interacting with him. Sometimes they're even having him over for dinner. But then he has him over, and Jesus doesn't go through this ceremonial washing. Now, there was nothing in the Old Testament law, even in the ceremonial law, that said you had to wash your hands before dinner. But this was one of the things that in all the pharisaical extrapolations of the law that we talked about last week, where they would add... All of the, you know, the Mishnah you maybe heard. That's their interpretation of the law, their application of the law. And they would be more severe. And even some members of the Sanhedrin, another different religious group, sometimes they would say, no, no, you need to take our application and interpretation of the law even more seriously than you take the law itself because the law isn't quite clear enough. And what we've done is we've made it clearer for people so they know exactly. So here would be the reasoning, Okay. There was a thing in the Old Testament you're familiar with being ceremonially unclean. 
And they think, well, Gentiles are ceremonially unclean. So what if today I went to market and accidentally touched something that a Gentile touched, or maybe accidentally touched a Gentile? Before I eat, before I take something into my body, I need to make sure I wash my hands to cleanse off all of the ritual impurity. And they had this kind of lavish way they would wash their hands. I mean, they, you know, right? I mean, it almost sounds like ancient COVID protocols, you know, like how warm the water had to be, and you had to hold your fingers up, and it had to go all down your forearms. It was ridiculous. But again, they had kind of mastered this art. Um, when I was first uh, at Sanford University, I was a freshman. This would have been 1995. And I, I really started walking with Christ when I was about 15. So at this point, I'm 18. But I was going through a thing, and I bet some of y'all have been through it before, is I was trying to kind of re-examine all of my convictions from a biblical point of view. And one of the things that had kind of hit me, and I don't remember exactly when, is like, man, people in the South make such a big deal about praying before you eat. And I just realized, it's like, where's that in the Bible? I don't know of a command that says you have to pray before you eat. And at Samford, it's probably not this way at most colleges. It's probably not even this way at Samford anymore. But it was this way back then. I mean, it was almost humorous. There might be the biggest party animal in the fraternity who everybody knew was just as lost as a goat. But when he would come to the cafeteria to eat, there was almost like this big display of, you know, get my calf tray, sit down at the table with a bunch of good-looking girls, you know, then take off his hat, you know, and like have like his quiet time over his meal before he'd start eating his lunch. And so as I'm just observing some of this, and listen, I had all my own pride and all sorts of wrong things, and I'm like, I don't know where there's a verse in the Bible that says you have to pray before you eat. I just started, in a sense, going the other way. I would sit down and make a big deal about it. I never said the blessing. So if a bunch of people sat down at the same time and started eating, I'd just start eating my sandwich and smacking as loud as I could to make a point. I don't say the blessing. Now, since then, I have found places in the Bible that do talk about praying over your food, so I typically do pray over my food. But, but the point is this. We can take things, principles, make a personal application. We talked about this last week and turn it into a law and then kind of boast in it. Look at me. Look at how righteous I am. And the Pharisees had done this with their ways of washing their hands. Okay, So, uh, verse 39. And the Lord said to him, Now, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish... But inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Do you understand what he's saying? He's using this illustration to say, okay, imagine if you're just eating, and you want to stay clean, and you want to stay healthy, and you have a cup. What's more important, to wash the outside of the cup so that it looks pretty to everybody? Or to wash the inside of the cup so that when you put some water in there, the water doesn't get contaminated. Obviously, it's more important to deal with the inside of the container than the outside. But he's saying, with you guys' lives, on the inside, you're full of wickedness. And specifically, greed. I mean, this is something that comes out. If you study everything that the Gospels say about the Pharisees, they loved money. And they would find ways to justify not even giving money to their old parents that they were supposed to take care of. Because they said, well, no, 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 I've dedicated all this, this inheritance to God. So sorry, Mom and Dad, I'm not going to be able to help you all out because I'm just so godly I'm giving it all to the temple. Not now, but later. I'm planning to give it to the temple one day. They were greedy. They loved money. They didn't love people. But outside, look at how I wash my hands. I'm the best hand washer in all of Israel. And they boasted in it. They redirected the law. They redirected the focus of the law from the internal, from the heart that God really cared about, to externals that God didn't really care about. And they were boasting in those things. 
Now listen, one of the reasons we do this is because you can kind of say, look how great I am. It doesn't just make you feel good in front of other people. You can also feel really good in front of God. I always say the blessing. I always wash my hands. I always show up for Wednesday night church, whatever it is. And you can feel a little bit better about yourself. And he's saying, you fools. Which, biblically speaking, to call somebody a fool is to say, you're living like a practical atheist. You're living like God doesn't even exist. God is not real. You're treating God like he's not even a real entity. If you think you can get away with this. If you think he doesn't see the inside of your heart. Look, verse 41 again. Give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. I care about your heart. I care about you loving people. I would rather you were more concerned about helping Gentiles, loving them, than staying ritually pure from them. So they're wrongly redirecting the law, okay? But they're also going to be reinterpreting it, okay? Well, it's almost like this. You know, have you ever been to see a magician? And one of the things the magician will do is the magician will try to say, you know, they're trying to do something over here. And so what do they do? They distract you with a mirror or a light or a wave of their hand over here. And in a sense, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They're trying to distract people from their hearts. I remember when uh, my kids were younger and maybe we're playing whatever, ping pong, basketball, a board game. And at the very beginning, they said, we're playing to 21, playing to 21. And they're in the lead. And then as their younger brother starts to catch up, they're like, we said playing to 15, right? They're trying to change the rules of the game so they can win midstream. And in a sense, those are the type of things that the Pharisees were doing. Okay. Now, second point, they reinterpret the law. Or you could say they right-size the law. They try to minimize the law and get it small enough so they're like, this is something I can actually keep. This is something I can actually be good at. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greeting in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, the Old Testament made a big deal about tithing. You know, we've talked some about what in the Old Testament carries over the New Testament. Here's a really interesting thing. The New Testament never talks about tithing for believers. This is the closest that it comes to talking about tithing is when Jesus says, you guys tithe, and you ought to. And listen, I do believe New Testament Christians should tithe, okay? But the New Testament just doesn't talk about it much. But notice what's happening here. The Pharisees would have like a little garden in the backyard. And they were so meticulous about tithing. If they had some little herb plant that had ten leaves, they'd break off one leaf and take it and give it. If they had something they had ten seeds, they might count out one seed and go and give it. Which they were more strict than the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law didn't say you had to actually do that. They're magnifying the strictness of the law. But again, why? Because they are negating the most important things. I mean, the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, makes it very clear. Some commands of God are more important than other commands of God. Right? Do we all know that? Let's just say you get in a debate with somebody. Because there are a lot of Christians that say, no, no, all the commands are exactly the same. If you wanted to, in a sense, win the debate with somebody, no, 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 some commands are more important than other commands, where would you go biblically to make that point? Like what commands from the Old Testament? Could be anywhere. What's that? I was saying like what commands from the Old Testament specifically, but... Yeah, just in, just, just in general. 
that some commands are more important than other commands. Where would you, where would you make that point biblically? Sermon on the Mount, he says, like, this is the greatest commandment. Okay, I mean, multiple times Jesus says, I mean, sometimes it's an answer to a question, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus didn't say, no such thing as the greatest commandment, they're all the same. He said, no, no, there is a greatest commandment. And he said, and then I'll tell you the second is like it, there is a second greatest commandment. So there, there is a hierarchy. Some things are more important than others. And guys, from this passage, what we can see is this. Love and justice. Loving God and loving your neighbor, that's basically what he's talking about, are more important than tithing. The internal character of your heart is more important than the external, exact, rigorous, strict law-keeping. Now listen, because there's a ditch on both sides of the road with this. One ditch is to say the outside matters more than the inside. That's wrong. That's what the Pharisees were doing. The other ditch on the other side of the road is to say, all that matters is the inside, so the outside doesn't matter. Right? That's what some people later in the church at Corinth were saying. They're saying, listen, you don't know how much love I have for God in my heart, and I speak in tongues, and I'll do all this stuff. Now, yes, after church, I love to go sleep with a prostitute, but that doesn't matter. That's just my body. That's external. In my heart, I love Jesus. That's all that really matters. No, no, no. Because if you really have the internal love for God and neighbor in your heart, it's going to spill over. But what Jesus was pointing out about the Pharisees is they acted like they had all the external stuff right, but it didn't smell right because their heart wasn't right. Now, if you go read in Numbers, it does say, you know, to touch a dead body made you ceremonially impure. You weren't supposed to go to the tabernacle if you touched a dead body. Even to touch a grave. Now, this is weird to us, but think about it from a ceremonial point of view. God's a God of life. Death has no place in my presence. And so if you've even come in contact with death, even touching a grade, don't come into my presence until you've been purified. So Israelites tended to be very careful about marking graves because you didn't want to touch it. So you could stay ritually pure, go to church. But Jesus says to the Pharisees, and this had to be so insulting to them, you guys are like unmarked graves. Think about it. You've got all these average Joe and Jane Israelites that come to you guys thinking they're going to understand better how to get closer to God. But actually in coming to you and you look great on the outside, you're ruining people because you're so saturated with wickedness and you love yourself and you're self-serving. You don't really love people. You don't really love God. Okay? They were right-sizing the law. They were trying to boil the law down to things they could actually do. And people still do this today. When you hear people that make a bigger deal about what kind of TV shows they watch, what they do eat, what they don't drink, all that kind of stuff, and they, 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 there's never a, a smell and a feel of real joy in God, real love for people, a real sacrificial investment of their time and their money to help other people. It's a modern-day Phariseeism, okay? And this plays out in so many different ways uh, that I think we all can probably think in our own lives that we see. Listen, there's a dual motive in this kind of right-sizing. It really does make me feel better before God if I can lie to myself and say, well, what he really cares about are these external laws, and I'm doing that, so now I feel better for God. And oh, by the way, it's almost like an added fringe benefit. It also makes me feel a little bit better in front of other human beings because I get to stand out as... Look how put together I am. Look how all my ducks are in a row. 
Okay? If what I really love and want is the approval of man and God, what good is the, you know, internal stuff? Imagine if when my kids were younger, if I said to one of my older children, hey, mom and I are going on a date, you're going to babysit tonight. And it would be great if you could get all the dishes washed before we get home so mom will be happy and in a good mood when we get home. But the dishes are a secondary issue. What I really care about is be nice to your brothers and sisters. Be kind to them. Speak respectfully to them. Don't lord your authority over them. Yes, you're in charge, but be kind, be gentle, play some games with them, be nice. If when I come home from date night, if all three of my younger children are like crying and screaming and mad and complaining, and my oldest son is like, look, Dad, I got all the dishes done, just perfect, did the best job ever. At some level, I'm like, buddy, I really don't care about the dishes that much. The dishes were a distant second. I care so much more about the heart of your brothers and sisters. And you were mean. You were selfish. You didn't let them watch any of the TV shows they wanted to watch because you played video games the whole time and locked them in their room, and now they're mad and screaming. And we need to think, are there ways that we tend to emphasize external and secondary things and not emphasize the deeper things of the heart in the ways that we should? Okay. Um, so... We can refocus the law. We can redirect the law. We can right-size the law. But then it keeps going. Sometimes we just reduce the law. We just we really shrink it, so to speak. Okay, so um, look at verse 45. One of the lawyers. Now, the lawyers back then were not like legal lawyers as much as we think about. They were, spirit, they were uh, you know, biblical lawyers. They studied the law, and they made a lot of these interpretations. A lot of times, Pharisees were lawyers, and lawyers were Pharisees. Not always. You could be a Pharisee and not be a lawyer, or vice versa. But there was a lot of overlap. These two guys were in leagues, leagued together. Okay? One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. He's basically saying, Jesus, you may not know it, but you're not just insulting the Pharisees. You're insulting all the lawyers. Jesus doesn't back down. He said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying, you guys make up all these extra applications of the law and then exalt them and treat them the law, and you guys aren't even serious about keeping the law. If you go over to Matthew 23, we won't do it today for sake of time, but there's a place where some of the teachings of the Pharisees and the lawyers would go like this. Hey, listen. If you make an oath and you swear by the temple, that doesn't really count. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you actually have to keep your vow. And they had all different kinds of laws like that. Now, what were they doing? They were basically legalizing lying. They were trying to get real technical and say, well, you can, you can basically make a false vow and not have to keep it. You just have to know the right terminology to use. But it was all gamesmanship. And what were they doing? It would be like this. It would be like the politicians in Washington, D.C. that sometimes pass laws that don't apply to them. Right? It's like the accountant that would come to you and say, you have to pay all of these taxes. But then they find a loophole so they don't have to pay that, those kind of taxes. And guys, sometimes spiritual leaders do this. This is a good passage for us all in full-time ministry to really think about. When we're teaching the Word, whether that's in a small group, a one-to-one, or up front, be real careful about the stuff that you teach that you actually apply. Practice what you preach, right? James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because those of us who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, this is kind of a side note, but it's an important one. We don't obey the moral law of God perfectly. 
but we still need to teach it perfectly, right? I mean, we don't need to say, well, you know, I just, I'm kind of lazy, you know, in my, in my discipline, so you just be lazy too. No, we, we, we need to teach it right, but here's, here's the key. We need to make sure that in our teaching, there's, there's an honest sincerity about, guys, here's the standard, here's God's standard, and by God's grace, I'm striving towards that standard, but I'm not there yet. Here's still I, how I still struggle. Here's how I still wrestle to get there and sometimes fall short. I mean, let, let's don't say any names or anything, but I bet all of us at some point have read a book or heard a preacher or a pastor or whatever talk sometimes, and it almost sounds like they're the real hero, hero of the story. You know what I'm talking about? It's like every example is an example of something they did, and they always did it right. I mean, they are the model of obedience. It's like, yeah, I'm supposed to follow Jesus. I think I'm also really supposed to follow this guy in everything. And there's other people that is, they're teaching, but there seems to be this genuine quality of, hey, let me tell you how I blew it last week. Now, which one tends to resonate with us more? Because we're like, yeah, I blew it last week too. And it helps me to hear how you blew it and how you repented and how you're still a fellow struggler. And unless we're Jesus Christ, that's the way we need to teach. Again, whether we're in a one-on-one conversation with a high school student or speaking to a conference of a thousand, there ought to be this humble, genuine sincerity that says, here's God's perfect standard. I'm not going to reduce it. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm going to be brutally honest about how high it is. And I'm going to be serious about we need to be aiming for that. But I'm also going to be honest about I haven't gotten there yet. I mean, even Paul did that. Not that I have already obtained it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. That needs to be our attitude. Okay? Um, now, uh, let's kind of think by way of application for a second. How are we guilty of this? I mean, is there any way in our life where we try to kind of reduce stuff or we try to focus more on the external than on the internal? Let me give you an example. And this is a real example. It's not made up. And it's, it's almost too funny uh, or too sad something, okay? But this, this is a helpful example. I was, and this, this is with campus outreach staff in a different state. Nobody in this room or on Zoom knows these people, okay? This has been a few years ago. And I was talking to a guy who was a campus director, and he said, man, me and my campus team, we're having a lot of conflict. You know, we're getting a lot of arguments. We're just, there's not unity. Having a lot of conflict. How would you tell me to lead through this? And I said, and this is kind of the way my brain works. I said, well, man, give me a concrete example. You know, give me a concrete example of some conflict you're having, and then I'll try to kind of discern the principles from the specific incident. He said, well, you know, like last week in our Monday morning staff meeting, you know, we all kind of got in this argument. I said, what was the argument about? He said, well, we were arguing about, you know, these certain kind of new vitamins on the market and should you be taking these vitamins and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, why are y'all talking about vitamins in a Monday morning staff meeting where you're supposed to be like planning the week to minister to students? He's like, well, you know, my wife, she's really in. She's selling these new vitamins, and she's very into this clean eating. And, and so as I got more details, here was the bottom line. His wife had started this new business selling some kind of vitamins. I don't know, juicy fruit or juicy juice or whatever, some kind of something. You know, and they had gotten really passionate about clean eating, right, green smoothies and all this kind of stuff. And it had gone from they were personally passionate about clean eating to if you're really a good steward of your body, you have to eat this way. And so they were coming into staff meetings basically saying, hey, all of y'all, you really need to buy these vitamins and eat the same way we do. And some of the other people were like, I think y'all are taking this a little too serious. And it turned into this big debate where they're getting angry and like screaming at each other. 
And part of why I was trying to help this guy is, I was like, hey, show me the verse that says that every Christian has to take the juicy fruit, you know, vitamins or whatever they're called. Well, you know, it does talk about being a good steward of your body, you know, 1 Corinthians 6. I thought, yes, yes it does. There's the principle. But there's no law that says you've got to take these vitamins. But there are really clear laws about love and kindness and gentleness and communication, right? Ephesians chapter 4. And you're so passionate about your per- personal application on these vitamins and clean eating that you've missed the deeper law of love and communication. Does that make sense? Listen, some of you are like, I don't take vitamins. This doesn't apply to me. I'm just using that as an example to prime the pump in our minds. Where might there be a place in our life? Here's another way I've seen people do it. When I was on one of my first beach projects, I remember one of the leaders of the beach project, he was, he was, he was a Nazi, right? About, if you're not 15 minutes early, you're late, right? We all probably know somebody like that. Again, if that's a personal application in your life, that's probably a wonderful personal application for you. When you try to turn that into a law for 150 college students, it's going to be an unmitigated disaster. So here's his application. It's like week two of Beach Project. And he's like, what I want to start doing is when we have the meeting, if the meeting's supposed to start at 9 a.m., at 9.01 we lock the door. And anybody who's not there, we just don't let them in and they'll learn their lesson. You know? And some of the younger staff are like, yeah, I guess so. You know, And I was like, and me and a couple other guys are like, oh, are we sure? I mean, we got non-Christians on this beach project. Are we sure that's what we want to rub in their face on the very second week? Is we're Nazis about being on time. And it's 901 and you're not here. And you know, and it's like, where's the verse that says that? Where's the on time verse? Well, what about be a person of your word? They said they'd be here. It's like, okay, but 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 I think we're exalting a little bit too much on be on time and not enough on love. Does that make sense? And listen. I have done the same things with my kids where I, where I have jumped all over them for something small that they did. And my wife has to pull me aside later and say, technically, you were right. You win the argument. Great. But you might be losing the relationship in the way that you lost the argument. Does that make sense? So this is a good thing to personally examine. Is there any way where I'm focusing on the external over the internal? Is there any way where I'm focusing on the secondary over the primary. And listen, if you're like, well, how do I know exactly what's the primary? Just focus on these two primaries and it'll be enough to convict you, I promise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. You won't run out of stuff to work on your own heart. Okay? Um, Is there any way in your life, in my life, that we are trying to right-size the law so that I can fit? I mean, how about this? The New Testament doesn't talk very much about tithing. And I think there's a good number of conservative, evangelical, Protestant Christians like, I tithe, I tithe. Leave me alone with my money. But the Bible has a lot more to say about giving generously, giving sacrificially, giving joyously, right? Gladly, hilariously. Are you doing those things? Are you giving above and beyond? Are you giving till it hurts? Or are you just saying, I tithe, shut up and leave me alone? I remember another time, the guy, guy was a campus Harris leader, and we were on some summer project together, and he kind of made this public boast. I'm not going to watch any rated R movies this summer. Okay, that's good. I mean, if that wants to be your personal application, fine. Okay, But here was the thing. About a month later, you know, I want to go see a rated R movie with somebody else, and he's sitting in the back. 
You know, I heard a story one time about a preacher. won't say his name. I did. You know who I was talking about? And I knew a guy that actually went to his church, and he made some big point in a Sunday morning sermon about, what about the speed limit? Drive 55, and none of us take that serious. And literally the next day, a guy that worked at his church that was a member there gets passed by this guy, just flies by him, you know, speeding down the road somewhere. No, this congregant, I'm glad, was either crazy enough or bold enough. Next time he saw his pastor said, hey, pastor, you preached that sermon about 55, and then you passed me the other day going by 70 and a 55. And praise the Lord, the pastor was like, you're right, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. But here's the point I'm trying to make for us guys. It's easy in ministry to teach a certain standard and not live there. And just be careful. I hope you hear my heart in this. More importantly, I hope you hear Jesus' heart. I'm not saying that we back off one iota from the Word of God. Don't minimize the Word of God. Okay? But don't exalt your own personal applications and interpretations. And, and be gracious in the application of people. Okay? Um, so, what do we love most? Do we, do we really care more about the internal approval of God in our hearts, or do we care more about our reputation before men? Now, let's look at the last part of Jesus' teaching here. Verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said... I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key to knowledge, and you do not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, there's a lot there. We're not going to necessarily get into all the details, but here's the whole point. He's saying this. He's like, you guys love to boast that you're the true teachers of Israel today. You love to big build tombs, you know, to like Elijah the prophet or something like that talk about how you're like children of Moses and Abraham and Elijah. But if you'd been living in their day, you'd have killed them. You'd have been the people persecuting the prophets. And they might have said, we'd never do that. It would be a little bit like that. The first time I was studying this passage and I taught on it was two or three years ago. And the illustration that I used was this. And now it's a little more realistic. I said, what if Reverend Barker died, the founder of this church? And what if there were two different groups of people that wanted to honor Reverend Barker? And one of them said, we're going to get like the biggest oil painting or statue or something that you can imagine of Reverend Barker, and we're going to park it right out here in front of the foyer, like some gigantic statue of Reverend Barker that he would actually hate himself. But then as far as our lifestyle, we're not going to change it all. We're going to keep living the same way we're living. Loving our money, not loving people, basically living pretty much worldly lives. But there's another group of people that said, you know what, we don't really care about the statue, we don't care about the oil painting, but we're going to remember the life of Reverend Barker and how sacrificial he was, how much of his money he gave away, how much of his time and energy he gave away to leading lost people to Christ and picking up hitchhikers and having them sleep in his basement all the time. We're going to live that way. I mean, which crowd is actually honoring Reverend Barker more? 
And that's what Jesus is pointing out in the Pharisees and the lawyers. Like, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You love to memorize the words of Moses and the other prophets, but you don't even obey them. And I'd rather have your hearts rather than just your hypocritical words. You know, they might say, well, what are you talking about? We're going to be held guilty for the blood of all the prophets from Abel, right? I mean, the first murder ever, all the way to Zechariah, who in, in the Hebrew Bible, he would have been the last prophet that was killed in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, the, way, the order they had the books laid out. How are we going to be held guilty for that? Because the greatest prophet of all time, the, the true prophet, the one true prophet, the summation in some sense of all prophets, is standing right in front of them, teaching them the word of God, and look at how they respond. They walk away. There's no humility. There's no conviction. There's no brokenness. There's just scheming. We got to kill this guy. We got to get rid of him. And if you fast forward, there's a place in one of the Gospels that says Pilate even knew why the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. It's because they were envious. They loved his power. They loved his popularity. They loved his influence with the crowds. They're like, you know, we used to be the most famous teachers. People used to come and hang on our every word, and we loved it. People don't listen to us anymore because I'll listen to this guy. we got to kill him. Which in some sense, is the height of exactly what we're talking about. Externally, they're boasting in, look, we're having this debate with Jesus. We know so much about the Word of God. Internally, what they're doing, they're saying, we're going to kill you. So, don't take this to say the secondary doesn't matter. Don't take this to say the external doesn't matter. It does. Take this to say the internal matters more And if the internal is done right, then it will lead to the external and the secondary being done in the right way, in the proper way. Okay? And listen, I don't know about y'all, but even me, myself, studying this, teaching this, I'm convicted. And it makes me wonder, man, are there places that I have stood up and taught, whether this is family worship around my dinner table or at a campus outreach meeting somewhere where I've taught the Word a little bit more passionately than I actually applied in my own life. And I know I have. And see, in that moment, I'm being a little bit pharisaical if I'm not honest about the gap. Because in some sense, it's like I'm adding a burden onto the listener's lives that I'm not even caring. Does that make sense? That's part of what made Jesus so angry at the Pharisees. You guys don't even do this stuff. Not really. Not fully. And you're trying to burden all these people down. You're weighing them down with the weight of the law. You're even adding to it. But this is what's so glorious about Jesus. He's not just the greatest prophet of all time. He's the greatest priest of all time. And he didn't come to add to our burden. He came to take it away. He came to say, I am the only one who can take the full weight of the law the active demands to live a righteous life and the negative curse that I'm going to bear hanging on the cross under the weight of that so that you can be saved, so that you can be forgiven, so that we can live in real relationship together. And now we can pursue moral law-keeping, not with this kind of sinful, slavish fear. Oh, no, what if I do one little thing wrong? He's going to zap me. But more of, he's my father. He's my older brother. He's the spirit that dwells within me. 
He wants me to succeed. He's patient. He's gentle. He's kind. He understands the gap. He's sympathetic. He's been tempted in every way as I am. So I can go to him in honesty, right? Sincere attempts at obedience. That's gospel perfection. It's covered by the blood of Christ, and it pleases the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. I pray, Lord, that we would understand these things more perfectly, more clearly in our minds. But I pray that it would not stop there. I pray that it would read lead to a real transformation of our lives. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.